0: Welcome to the Redeemer Covenant Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. At Redeemer, we are dedicated to following Jesus and connecting people to God's transforming love. If you want to stay connected to all that's happening here, visit rcctulsa.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Good morning, Redeemer. It's so good to see you. What a beautiful, wonderful-looking group. I saw a I saw a dad, the first service this morning, he was carrying two baby carriers. I call them babies in a bucket, but I know that's not the right word. But he was carrying these two babies in, and I thought to myself, oh, I miss those days. And then I thought, not really. (laughs) But our grown children who live all over the country will be calling me today, which is great. Actually, one never does but he always texts me the next morning and he says, Dad, I'm sorry I missed Father's Day. It's the same pattern every time. I can tell you what order they're going to call, but I always look forward to this day. Well, I want to thank my colleagues who have been preaching on the Sermon on the Mount in previous weeks, and they've done a wonderful job. And so today I want to continue with some very radically challenging words of Jesus. And I don't use that word radically loosely. These, this is a radical teaching today. If we get our arms around this and understand this and live this, we have just entered a zone that most people don't ever get to. It's that important of a text. Our main text this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. But if you'll find your Bibles that are under your seats or the ones that you brought with you or on your phones, Matthew chapter 5, 43 through 48. But also, I want to back up to verse 38 to kind of give the context of this is really important. So you've heard these words before in all likelihood in some context. But just as you're hearing me read them, think how radical these words really are. And then ask yourself, does he mean this? He does. It's beginning at verse 38. From chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay, this is challenging stuff. Does he mean this? Is this literally the truth? Is this how we're supposed to live? And if so, how do we live that way? I want to remember with you that in this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is on a hillside, probably overlooking the Sea of Galilee, not far from his own home in Nazareth that he grew up in. And he is is teaching a group of people who, in general, were like us, but in this specific way were different in the way they carried their grievances. So that part of Israel was full of small villages. People gathered in those small villages. They were very public about their feelings with one another. Often they had enemies, and then in that day they named them. Today we're too polite to actually name the name of our enemies. But they, they named them. They had feuds and quarrels and disagreements. And if you go to Israel today, the same is really true. There are differing people, different ethnic groups, different religions... And they somehow managed to make it work, but it's filled with frictions and hostility and anger. And it's publicly expressed. It's not silently or quietly or politely not mentioned like in our culture most of the time. So as we look at this text, remember, these were the same kind of people as us, but they didn't have the same nice factor that folks like us try to try to have. Jesus is introducing in this text and the one to follow, Jesus is introducing a very, very important concept. We like to think that Jesus has done away with the law when in fact Jesus Jesus hasn't done away with the law, he has fulfilled the law. And he has implemented from this point on that there will be a new law and it is the law of love. And this law of love transcends any other law, any other teaching. The law of love says instead of ratcheting up the verbal and sometimes physical violence, he says we don't engage in this. The followers of God don't engage in this. It's a radical teaching. He says when we have a disagreement with someone that can't be resolved, we don't seek to get even, we let it go. And we let God be the one to love the other person. And if there's a remedy, let God find the remedy. One of my favorite favorite history teachings in the, back in the 18th century, the American frontier revival movement, was a story about, it's a true story, about a, a frontier evangelist named Peter Cartwright. Peter Cartwright was a kind of a man's man, a tough guy spoke really loud and he would have these outdoor crusades or camp meetings and people would come by the hundreds and sometimes the thousands to come and hear the gospel preached and to hear Peter Cartwright. And he would just find a tree stump, someone would cut down a tree, he would stand on it and he would preach the gospel. And there, was people, there were people having picnics, there were people milling around, there were people holding a, this enrapt attention and then there were hecklers there were quite a few hecklers. He was used to it. And he had a unique way of dealing with it. On one particular day, this was in Kentucky, back about 1840, he's preaching the gospel. He's a very authentic Christian man. He's preaching against slavery. He's doing and saying all the right things. But there was this heckler who kept bugging him and kept harassing him. And so, um, he, he... Cartwright just sensed that this guy was actually going to come and slug him in just a minute, but he kept preaching. And the guy finally charged up to the stump of the tree and hauled Peter Cartwright down. Peter Cartwright's standing now on the ground level with this guy and he deliberately turns his right cheek and the guy just cold cocks him right there. Peter Cartwright fell down. He gets up, dusts himself off. He stands back up on the stump, and he deliberately turns his left cheek to the man. The heckler then took his fist, and he shoved it into the left side of his face. Down went Peter Cartwright again, and then Peter Cartwright gets up, dusts himself off, and then just proceeded to just thrash the man. He just just beat him up to a pulp. And as he did so, and after he had finished, he said, "'Remember the scriptural teaching. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. After that, he said, there are no further instructions.'" <laughs> now, sometimes you use an example in a sermon of what not to do. That would be not to, not something not to do. But I've always loved that story. "'There are no further instructions.'" Actually, he's, he's sort of right, but if you take the spirit of this, there are. Well, I understand how Peter Cartwright would be frustrated, but obviously his interpretation of the passage is hanging on the literal message rather than the pure meaning of the word. Jesus' new law, the law that he's implemented, is much more stringent than the actual old law. Jesus said, revenge belongs only to God. That's the essence of this. Revenge belongs only to God. And anything we do to get even with someone, to pick a fight with someone, to continue that fight in perpetuity, to continue to not love that person, is missing the point of the teaching on the Mount. So the second text is the official, if you will, text of the morning from Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Stop, parentheses. That would have been a common understanding in that day. It makes sense to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Hatred was a part of that culture much as it is a part of still, of modern culture. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? And then here comes this last verse that Wapsall did a really good job of last week. But later in the message, as I finish, I want to talk about this verse because it deserves, I think, special attention. Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, therefore, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. So let's be clear. Most of us in this room, most of us would say, I really don't have any particular enemies in my life. That may be very true. I hope it's true for you. But I'm sure there are at least some who have a perceived enemy in their life. Not all, but some. Some of us have enemies, but maybe even more of us have, to use the current lingo, frenemies. What's a frenemy? The dictionary defines a frenemy as someone with whom One is friendly despite a fundamental dislike or rivalry. Because in the modern world we know how to be polite. We want to be nice people. We don't want other people to think we're mean or odd. So we'll have enemies, we'll think of them more as frenemies, and we just kind of go underground with this dislike and this ongoing rivalry, and this sense of ongoing, lousy relationship. If we have enemies, or if we have frenemies, what do we do? Well, this text is really quite clear. We're called to not strike back. We don't talk to them negatively to others. But this this is not complicated what we're really called to do is to love them and trust that if vindication is required if some getting even is the right thing to do then that's god's business it's not ours we leave it up to god paul had a conflict in his letter to second timothy chapter four, chapter 2 or chapter 4 verse 14 Paul talked about a relationship with a guy named Alexander the Metalworker. Poor guy, he was an enemy of Paul's and he gets named in the Bible for all eternity, and we don't even know anything more about Alexander the Metalworker. But Paul says Alexander the Metalworker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. Ouch. Paul is rightly backing away from the quarrel. But he reminds his listeners God will repay him. That's a tough place to be. And obviously this wasn't just a dispute over an issue. This was something fairly serious. But Paul took himself out of the get-even business. He left matters to God. And as a result, his own mind was free of worry of this and a spirit of revenge. He just gave it over to the broad shoulders of God. As a pastor, I have wrestled with people about this question some in the past. Someone's brave enough to want to talk about it and says, here's my problem with another person. And you could visibly see, I could visibly see on their face that this was a serious matter that was causing them a lot of internal grief and a lot of frustration, anxiety, difficulty, pain, And it sounded to me like they're probably right. The situation doesn't sound fair. But my job was to say, this isn't your battle. Can you turn this one over to God? Because your desire to get even, your desire for revenge, your desire for justice, perhaps, isn't doing anything to remedy the problems of the other person. But it's eating you up. Can you give this to God? And I've seen situations where people have come to that place, and it's powerful. It's powerful when they do. The last verse of this passage is the one that's maybe particularly hard to understand. And again, I really like Wopsle's treatment of it last week, and nothing in this contradicts that. But there is this phrase, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now there's a couple of branches of theology. Uh, one view of the Christian faith and on these kinds of issues is, there is no such thing as Christian perfection in this life. You're not going to get it. Try all you want to, you're never going to be perfect. The other side of the branch comes from the Wesleyan branch, which John Wesley was the founder of this idea. He said he himself had never become perfect in life, even in his later years, but he said he knew one person, an older woman, who he believed was perfect. I don't know. Never knew her. But anyway, can you be perfect in this life? I don't think so. I think perfection awaits us in the next, but I remember when I was ordained to the ministry, I was first ordained in the Methodist Church, following the Wesleyan principles. The bishop sent us this list of things that we had to say yes to when the bishop quizzed us on the floor of this meeting where we were ordained. And one of the questions, I think it was number six, was, do you expect to be perfected in this life? And you're supposed to say yes. I, I you know, I may have been brash, but I, at least I was trying to be honest And I thought, well, when they asked me that question, I'm just going to be silent or mumble or something. But finally, I asked the superintendent over us, and I said to the superintendent, I said, I don't think I can answer yes to that question. And he says, I get your point. He says, well, don't say yes to that question. Say yes to a different question. Think of it this way. Are you moving closer to perfection or further away from it? I said, "Hey, that's a neat trick. I can do that. Maybe I'm making progress, so I'll just say, "Yeah, I'm making progress toward perfection." I crossed my fingers in my back and I, behind my back, and I said, "But I don't believe I'll ever be perfect." In the context of this passage, maybe that's what being perfect is about. I suspect there's no one here who's the perfect parent or the perfect child, or certainly not the perfect pastor. So when you hear these words, don't go on a guilt trip about what Jesus is demanding of us, that we can't possibly fulfill. The question is, are you functionally moving toward perfection? Is there some sense in which you are determined, absolutely determined, to live by the grace of God and into the commands of God? especially the commandment that has now replaced all the other commandments. It's the law of love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you will be a model in this fractured, broken world where violence and harsh words are the norm, not the exception. I feel this very deeply, and I'm not seeking to make a political statement, but I have personally never seen in my 63 years a time in this country's life where the opposing sides are as vicious in their words as they are right now. We can't keep living this way as a people. We can't keep being as polarized as we are right now. We can't keep yelling at each other and calling each other names. We can't be criticizing others without meaning and be a healthy culture. So there's really only one answer to this problem, because I don't expect politics to change overnight. The solution to this is in our own families and in our own friendships. The solution to this requires that we honestly believe we don't have to win every argument. That the other person could have a point of view worth hearing. That we don't have to be right. That humility is this principal, principal virtue of the Christian faith. That the very Son of God, imagine this, that the very Son of God gave up the right to be right. Standing before Pontius Pilate, standing before those who sought His demise, Jesus refused to take up the right to be right. He had done nothing wrong. He didn't engage in argument. He simply willing was willing to sacrifice Himself for us and for our salvation. Had Jesus taken another turn, our futures would have been very, very, different. You and I will never be more like Christ than when we make the intentional decision to love rather than to get even. Let me say that again. You and I will never be more like Christ than we make the decision, than when we make the decision, to love rather than to get even. When we make the other the decision let the other person go to trust whatever remedy needs to be applied to them to to God and to God alone we will have embraced the teachings of this part of the Sermon on the Mount so I want to challenge you this morning if there's someone in your life you need to let go of right now to let go of trying to get even to let go of trying to personally fix them To make them see things your way. You can stop when you're ready and simply decide to love them. It doesn't mean you don't care about what they've done, it doesn't mean that you completely forget about what they may have done. But what it means is you're turning it over to God, who has an infinite capacity to do the remedy that we can't do. So as I pray this morning, I'd like to ask you to just intentionally say for the person in my mind that I'm thinking of right now, God, they have my forgiveness. That's hard to do, but God, they have my forgiveness. I give them back to you. And if there's a remedy or a penalty to be paid, God, that's it's above my pay grade. I'm going to give this one completely to you. Would you pray with me? Oh God, whose law is love. And who in Jesus did send this holy, innocent man for our redemption. For his sacrifice, not did not just bring us salvation. It brought us hope and change, even in the dynamics of our human relationships on this earth now. So God, in our mind's eye, we just let go those who've hurt us. We let them go. Part of the problem may have been ours. We own our part. But to the extent that we have been hurt, we let it go. And we let God do His redemptive work through the law of love, through the work of Christ Himself. Free us. Free us from the burden of fixing something which is not ours to fix. Lord, we give this to You. In the redeeming, loving name of Jesus. Amen.